Hey guys, this is Caleb with War Council. The following podcast is of fairly low audio quality. We didn't realize at the time just how bad uh, our recording sounded, and we've done our best to clean it up in places, but there's only so much we can do with it. We're a newer podcast, and we don't have the same access to nice audio equipment that a lot of the older, more established podcasts do. We did record this podcast on video as well, so you can watch this podcast as a three-part YouTube series on our YouTube channel. Um, however, for those who do want to listen to it through uh, streaming media like iTunes, we do provide that as an option. So listen to it either way you like. Um, we personally feel like the YouTube videos sound better. Um, but that being said, it's your option. So enjoy. This is Caleb with White Metal Games here, and uh, we have a special podcast tonight. We have the uh, makers and creators of Proxy Army. Uh, is it Proxy Army LLC? Is that correct? Just Proxy Army Games. Uh, just Proxy Army Games. Um, why don't you guys introduce yourselves both for the camera for our YouTube channel and for our, our, uh, our podcast. Alright, uh, I'm Alan Clark, uh, co-founder of Proxy Army Games. I was a restaurateur before I did this. Now I'm a game dev. Uh, I'm Tristan, co-founder of Proxy Army Games. Uh, I did six years of engineering and then realized I was going to be a terrible engineer. So now I'm doing this, I'm a game dev. Um, so guys, tonight the podcast is going to focus, well, we're going to focus on Proxy Army, but specifically Proxy Army is a 3D game printing company. And this is sort of a new industry, um, and I know there's a lot of interest in it. It's sort of, a, sort of a trending topic in gaming to see what 3D printing can bring to the table, and uh, in addition to that, where we think that the industry is going. So can you just sort of in a few words sum us up what is Proxy Army and what you guys are aiming to do, I guess? Sure. We are building Proxy War, our new gaming miniature 3D printing service. So as an example, say you want a custom miniature of your D&D character. You could log onto our website, grab a torso, grab limbs, clip them on, clip on a head, set expression, drag and drop equipment onto them, and create a fully custom miniature exactly of your character. You can also do the same thing with tabletop war games, board game pieces, or any other tabletop game miniature. So specifically, does that mean the Proxy Army is a company that's going to be doing, like, let's say, custom role-playing miniatures and custom wargaming miniatures and bits and that sort of thing? Or do you guys, are you going to have, like, a full system or, like, a, your own game, and then this is just sort of icing on the cake? Definitely the first one. We do have our own game, which is also called Proxy War, which we made so that you could cr uh, play with any miniature you can print. But we definitely do miniatures for RPGs or other tabletop games. Like, for instance, uh, in talking with Pathfinder, a D&D variant, if you're not familiar with it, one complaint we've gotten is that Tifling is one of the core races, but there are not really any good, excuse me, Tifling miniatures. So what you'll be able to do on our service is log on, grab Tifling, customize the expression, customize the gear, customize the weapon and pose, and if you're a D&D player, you can now have a fully custom miniature of your character. Now, when you say customize the expression, do you mean like you're going to be able to like change their facial expression, like from a smile to a frown, that kind yeah. of thing? Yeah, you can drag and drop various points. Um, the models are what's known as rigged. Uh, they can tell various points that should stretch, should bend, should move, should twist. Uh, they can do everything from the eyebrows. You can furrow them. You can stretch the smile out. You can make you know a, a Joker-ish, Cheshire-ish expression if you want. You can bend the uh, arm, you can pose it exactly how you want. It even knows which way an elbow should bend. And you can set it to bend and break the arms if you really want to. <laughs> so this kind of sounds like um, like video design software like for uh, like an RPG. Like if I was playing World of Warcraft and I wanted to make my own like Dwarven character or whatever, is it kind of like that where I can shift like their hair color, their facial color, that kind of thing? 
Yes, if but not with painted, of course, it's an unpainted. Yes, if you also had the option to drag the dwarf's head off and turn him into a robot. Okay. It's a lot more flexibility than that. Okay. So it seems like you just have just seemingly limitless options. Yep. Okay. Um, so why did you guys decide you wanted to get into the three D printing arena in the first place? Like, what brought? I mean, you, are you both gamers? I, I, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so there's a bit of a story behind it. Uh, so I think I mentioned earlier that I did engineering school until I realized I was going to be a terrible engineer. So as I had a few months left before I graduated school, no job prospects, and things were looking pretty grim, uh, to pass the time between impending un- now and impending unemployment, I figured, well, while I'm in the school, I might as well take the time when I have access to the school's 3D printers uh, to make bootleg miniatures for a certain tabletop game, which I will not name, on a podcast. Uh, so I started modeling them just so I could print them for myself. Friends started asking, oh, while you're doing this, could you go ahead and print a custom mini for me, for my army? I said, yes, sure. Eventually, the request started piling up to the point I didn't have time and had to start saying no. And that's when people said, oh, well, if I paid you 40 bucks, could you model this custom miniature for me so I can print it? Uh, and that's when I realized there was a business in custom printing models uh, and jumped from there right into this. How long ago was all that happening? Was this like the last couple of years? Six months. Six months ago. Yeah. All right. Yes. So this is fairly recently. Yes. So you went from engineering school and then you were doing these sort of custom models for friends, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then you suddenly launched a business. So can you tell a little bit about that transition, how you decided to just sort of create a business, and maybe how you guys met, how you guys got together? A few different questions there. I'll let Alan field the one about how we met. All right. Uh, Let's see. About five, six years ago, uh, I had just gotten out of college. I was looking for a a D&D group, basically, Um, and I was getting into Exalted, and I found this online Exalted campaign where I made the most broken character I've ever played. And I bumped into the other most broken character I'd ever met. And the player and I stayed in touch. I ended up running a four- or five-year campaign with him as my star player in it afterward. And we've been long, long-time friends and just, hey, you want to you wanna maybe make a miniatures game? And I contributed some core mechanics on the spot, and that's how it was born. Okay, so you just, that was how you guys first got together. Were you guys physically in the same town when this happened? Oh, no, no. Okay. So you guys were just completely states apart, and yeah. then you just sort of, what, moved, one of you moved closer to the other so you could actually jump on this? Or? Um, everyone in the company started out absolutely diaspora. We had people in New York, Brazil, Russia. Um, I was in St. Louis at the time. You were in Boston? Hanover, New Hampshire. Gotcha. And uh, we all, not all of us, not all of us are in the same place, but we all moved to Durham uh, because, frankly, it is a wonderful, great place. Uh, The Research Triangle is a great community. It has a very, we found out after moving here, high density of game stores per capita. Uh, It's one of the highest in the country. There's a lot of game stores. Yeah. It's great. So Uh, it it proved to be fertile ground for Proxy Army Games. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision to move to Durham? I know that Mm -hmm. we've talked about you guys were invited to some sort of, like, program, where you competed oh. against other small businesses. Yes. There you go. For those of you on YouTube, Alan is wearing his Groundworks shirt. Uh, Groundworks is a business incubator located in Durham in what's called the American Underground. Uh, an incubator is essentially free office space, which is given to a startup along with uh, advice, which is probably the more valuable part to help a young startup get off the ground. Uh, they uh, have put us up 
quite generously, and they've offered a lot of really helpful advice Absolutely. from people who know what they're doing on the business now, side. There's a timetable there, right? You guys are only invited to attend there for a short period of time? Yeah, it's about three months. Okay. And then after that, there's an option to renew if your business is going well? Mm -hmm. yes. If they like the goals that we've set out and the goals among those goals that we've met, they invite us to stay for another, I think it's one month each, yeah, again and again. Each. Yeah. Is there a finite number of months you can do that for, or eventually are they just like, well, as long as it takes? Their policy is you can stay as long as they think you are making substantive progress and obviously need the free rent. Yep. Who, um, who funds that, uh, the groundwork organization? The, the state of North Carolina through okay. a fund called the NC Idea Fund. Uh, the NC Idea Fund is designed to encourage technological uh, entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurism uh, in the research triangle, things like new chip designs, new tech companies, that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, but they realized since they are only for tech companies, there were a lot of good entrepreneurial ideas that they were having to reject because they are not tech. So uh, how many tech companies are in that space right now? Uh, in that space in the adjoining 24? And how many, I guess, retailers or people who are going to actually make a product? Oh, man. All One. right. Us. Yes. One? Now, we are one not. We are in the Groundworks Accelerator. We're actually not in the, uh, what's the other one? The Triangle Accelerator is the one that does tech companies. Yes. Okay. Uh, we are in the Groundworks, which is the side project, the ones that are not technically tech, but still are good entrepreneurial ideas that sure. they wanted to help support. Okay. So um, we are the only one actually in either group that is making a physical product. Everyone else is all apps, is all digital, is all, let's provide a service to other businesses. We're all about making a product. So you guys were all divided, you were all over the country or all over the world in some cases, and you got together through gaming, through Exalted, decided you wanted to create a world. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the world of, uh, I guess, Proxy War and what is that world about? Like, what is it a fantasy? Is it steampunk? Is it sci-fi? So it's sci-fantasy. Okay. Uh, our goal in creating the world for Proxy Army was that since this is a setting where players can print any model they like, you can conceivably show up with any army. I can show up with a very serious, very gritty, sort of turn-of-the-century steampunk army, and you can show up with ninja catgirl pirates. Okay. And we wanted a setting where these two armies could fight each other without it descending into farce or comedy. And the way we've done that is we've made it a sci-fantasy setting that essentially focuses on the fact that the galaxy is big. You can rule 99% of the galaxy, and there's a million stars you have never visited. Uh, so it is a, a setting that essentially, while you can have these big political movements, these large empires that rule vast swaths of the galaxy, there are always dark corners or rocks that have not been overturned. And when you overturn them, you can find minor empires, lesser powers, undiscovered races, strange technology. So it is a setting where anyone can really run into anyone, but you still have this larger, more interesting world. Yes. So when you first start the game, like for example, if I was in a game store and I saw Proxy War, what would a blister or a box look like? If I can have anything, how does that process work? Gotcha. Um, with our actual core conflict in the setting, because as, as much as there is so much room for everyone to include anything, any rock to overturn, any army you can imagine, the setting doesn't really speak to people without some kind of central conflict, and we've embodied that in the three core races, the Vana, the Nakara, and the Human uh, Solar Federation. Those three factions are the main conflict in Proxy War, and you'll see those in our starter packs. Um, the Vana are a race of, uh, we, would, we would see them as plant people, effectively. Technical pacifists. Technical pacifists, yes. Um, just because I genetically engineered a horrible plague race to go out and kill you, 
That does not mean I killed you, so my hands are clean. That's their whole ethos. People, do you mean like swamp thing plant people, or do you mean more like people the, who like plants? They're, they're, uh, the closer to the, the former. Their race's fundamental setup, <clears throat> which provides, uh, we think, a pretty interesting backstory for them, is they start as ambulatory, something of a forest sprite look to them, um, but eventually become sessile uh, and, be, and become an immobile plant. Uh, what has uh, therefore driven most of their race's history is that if you want a retirement plan, you have to cl clear some land by one means or another. So they are a race that is violently protective of its space. They've dealt with this with a philosophy of pacifism, but it is very much rules as written pacifism. I would never kill you, but my robot buddy might kill you, but that I don't see how that reflects on me personally. Um, so they offer a mix of high ideals and uh, the, the sort of gung-ho uh, militarism you expect in what is fundamentally a war game. Um, the other two factions, the humans and the Nakara, play into that. The Nakara are one of the many servitor races they created to kill for them so that they could keep their hands free of blood, who have revolted against them and are now trying to find their own place in the galaxy. When you say servitor, do you mean like an AI kind of thing? Like a robot race? No. Or? Um, the Nakara are essentially a psychic field that are that you bring other races and other beings into. They become Nakara uh, when they are sort of assimilated. Um, a hive mind. Yes, they're they're sort of a hive mind. They still have a certain sense of individuality, and within that hive mind, there are a number of other conquered races that the Nakara themselves, the original Nakara, whose shape and identity are now lost to time, uh, conquered and brought into the Nakara's sort of hive mind. Okay. Yes. So they're... So like a psychic empire kind of scouring yes. the stars. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And they are sort of the attack dogs of the Vana in their great galactic sort of... Hegemony. Uh, yes, their hegemony. Um, and that's what they were up until the more recent uh, upheaval in the social system in the setting. They, specifically, they, they their psychic hive mind ate a species with enough of a sense of individuality or enough of a sense of free will that enabled them to shrug off the Vana's control, and they resented having been used as pawns this entire time. Okay. Um, enter into this humans, who are the weakest of the starting factions, and they know it, uh, putting them in something of a position of galactic opportunists, or adventure, uh, at the adventuring spirit. Uh, they are the weakest of the factions, both technologically and militarily, but the other two great races are far too concerned with each other to notice or care about humanity. And so this is humanity's time to expand to the stars, to claim as much territory, technology, and wealth as they can. Yeah. Um, what scale is this game going to be on? So it's going to be 15, 25, 28 millimeter? 28 millimeter. Okay, cool. Um, so you've got three different factions. They're all bloodthirsty, and they're, it's all a territorial game. Um, what about when you said there's going to be a lot of player options for design? So can you give a, an example of how one of these races could be changed and, and I guess, just modified based on player whim? Sure. Gotcha. Uh, uh, yeah. so, uh, ever, so one thing we wanted was for players, because you, you don't want a, a, a standing start. You don't want to have to go from, I've never played this game before, to creating an entirely custom arc. So every core faction has 24 custom units slot, custom, uh, sorry, 24 units including six slots for custom units, which right now we're calling a mercenary detachment. Um, so you can field a Solar Federation army that contains six whatevers, any unit you can imagine, that is their mercenary detachment. Okay. So that means you can gradually introduce custom units. 
Now, this is done uh, officially, where, for instance, the, the Solar Federation comes with a number of different mercenary sub-factions. You can clip onto any of their armies, ranging from uh, humans who have genetically modified themselves to have special abilities to uh, mercenary subgroups to pirate raiders, that sort of thing. But players can easily create their own. Like, for instance, if you wanted to play a, uh, an infester-style army that you know, infects and seizes control of humans, you can buy a Solar Federation army, paint them gray with a somewhat zombie-like look to them, and then add to them up to a half dozen units, which are your alien monstrosities that are controlling them, and thereby create your own variant faction without needing to make a whole army from scratch. So if I wanted to do this sort of alien infestation thing, how would I go about that? Do I contact, just do I send an email to the company saying, hey, I want zombies, or is this more like, what's the relationship between the client and the customer in terms of game design? Well, there's two different ways we go about this. Uh, one of them is the personalized unit, and the other is the original. The personalized unit is you log onto our database of model parts, and you select, as he mentioned earlier, uh, torsos, weapons, limbs, chassis, mutations, powers, technology. You can find little, you know, glowing, not glowing, but little orbs with infection things that spread out. You can clip them onto the model at any point, and you can print it with that. Or, if you can't find exactly what you're looking for, if you want, say, um, a, a half-rotted-away head uh, for a human army, but you can't find that, just going to be extremely unlikely. But, for an example, in our database... Zombies are, zombies are popular. I think we'll have that. Yeah, we're definitely going to have zombies. But I'm using as an example uh, a half-rotted-away head with teeth showing, etc. If you can't find that, you... Uh, there's, there's an entire section of our website that is dedicated just to original units. You submit a one- or two-paragraph description. We put that in our queue. We get back to you with a... It's about a 10 to 12 question yeah. questionnaire. Um, we get back to you with a 10 to 12 question questionnaire that clarifies your concept and helps us pick out which of our design staff would be best suited towards working with you on your concept. We partner you with three members of our design staff, a uh, character artist, an illustrator, and a uh, 3D modeler. They take you from that description and that questionnaire to, okay, I've got this first round of concept art, here's 10 or 12 things, look them over, tell me what parts of these you like, okay. They get that feedback from that round, they produce another round, they get the feedback from that round, and so it goes until you've got one thing you are perfectly happy with. Now, all the other rounds of concept art, you don't have to discard them. We hang on to those, and you can uh, you can set up to work on one of those as another original unit later. Um, but we take that one, we send it to orthographics, and then we send it to the 3D model, and you go from your two-paragraph description of a random plague-rotted zombie head to holding the actual prototype in your hand. That sounds very cool in concept. I think that, I guess one of the concerns I would have um, from my perspective would be, how much time is that going to take your designers to go through, and specifically, like, let's say, uh, let's say um, we want to design this zombie clown ballerina thing, and I'm going to pay whatever that model's going to cost. It's like it's a blister pack. Let's say it's 20 bucks. You know, how many hours are your designers spending dedicated to that to basically make the same twenty dollars I would I would spend if I just bought like a clam pack that was already there on the shelf? So having fully original content created for you is extra. The the price for how much it is varies. Okay. Um. So for instance, just to have a rotting zombie head or a custom weapon or a tutu to put an existing zombie model in, that might be another twenty dollars. Having an entirely custom unit created from scratch, there's nothing in the database like this, we're going to make it out of nothing. That goes all the way up to $430. Okay. Um, what we do, though, because we know that is 
definitely at the expensive end to make it a little more affordable, is whenever you commission uh, original content, it goes into the database and you get a percentage of the sales every time someone else uses it. Like let's say you commission a zombie head, uh, $20. That zombie head goes into the database. And whenever someone uses that zombie head on one of their models, you get a small percentage of that sale. Um, so that way, people continue contributing popular original content, get rewarded for it. Isn't that kind of getting like quite a bit of your profit, though? Theory? Not necessarily. Um, it's proportionate to how much it's ordered. If, if so, so what we learned pretty early on in this is that we are not the guardians of good taste. We do not have perfect psychic knowledge of what the gaming community wants. If you commission something that 10,000 people want, and they order 10,000 models of it, yeah, giving you a percentage of the sale of a percentage of 10,000 sales is a bit. But on the other hand, you basically just got us 10,000 sales with your idea, so we can't really see that as a bad thing overall. In addition to that, um, because people who are creators of good content are therefore incentivized to keep making good content, we're probably going to be watching you closely and seeing if you would like a spot on our design staff if you do something that runaway successful. That's very cool. It seems like that's a very like. Uh, just a transparent relationship between the player and the designer, and unlike a lot of games where you you sort of you're you're stuck with whatever the designers put out there, you love it, you hate it, whatever. This seems like a sort of an ultimate opportunity, just to kind of really build wherever you want. Absolutely. Uh, do you feel like this could grow, I guess, out of control a little bit? Like you're going to have tables of people playing with like evil killer clown zombies, and then how are you going to take your opponent seriously in that instance? Like, do you how do you, how do you think the culture of the game will develop around this? Seemingly limitless. You know. Part of, well, part of the way that we've uh, sort of taken that into account is that one, we accepted early on that we are not the guardians of good taste. What people want to play is what people want to play, and we've also worked very hard to craft a setting where these things can be taken in context, but are not the core of the game. Yes, you can have any army you want, but if you're going to play zombie ninja pirate cat girl robots from the far, far future. You can do that. We're not going to knock you for it. We are not going to say no. But your content won't be fully, perfectly, completely represented in the overall game simply because it is more niche. It is by default more niche. So, so one of the things we really want, uh, continuing with that, is a really active relationship between the game world and what the players are playing. So one of the things that has irritated us about many games out there is that the, the lore is unchanging. Um, we intend to have a much more dynamic relationship. Like, let's say one player comes up with a new army concept. He comes up with a, uh, a renegade human faction of space pirates, which are outrageously popular with the fan base. People love playing them. People love creating stories about them. People love creating new models for them. We can just go ahead and introduce that. We can say that there's a splinter pirate faction of the Solar Federation Navy, which is now one of the core factions in the game, which now anyone can play, which now has a place in the lore. So based on what players are playing, based on what uh, how the battles are going, we can adjust the lore to reflect that. So if you create an awesome, you know, Splinter Solar Federation pirate army, something that players can take seriously, something that really fits in the fluff, something that's just fun to have on the table, that can get integrated into the story. It can have a much bigger role in the lore overall. It can really become an integral part of the game. If you play zombie ninja, two, you know, ballerina cat girls from the future. That army is playable, but it will never appear in the lore except as a vague reference to there are some truly strange things in the dark corners of the galaxy. Yeah. Now, just out of curiosity, because I think this sounds really amazing. I mean, from my point of view, it sounds like it, it just sounds great. But mm -hmm. here's the thing: like, let's say that these zombie robot 
papyrus or whatever get really, really popular, at what point does the line between the designer and the player become kind of gray? Like, let's say you develop this faction. Do you feel like you're going to be liable if someone decides, like, hey, I designed that faction, I want a bigger portion of the profits? Do you feel like you're kind of setting yourself up to be kind of in the line of fire here? Like, like let's say I'm a vindictive player, and I take my happy whatever 1% of my sales, and, and I'm very satisfied with that for a while. Uh, but then after a while, I decide, well, I'm kind of a designer for the company, I should get more. Like, how do you, do you, do you have any... Do you feel there's any risk involved in that? Uh, so if you're designing models that are outrageously popular, we are going to offer you a job. Okay. Um, so not terribly worried about that. If ultimately it comes down to, um, you know, I'm going to take my toys and go home, uh, our database is for anyone to use however they like. No, regardless of where the models come from, uh, everything on our database is for anyone to use however they please. If um, None of, our, none of our designers think they know the correct way. If you're creating popular models on our service, we're going to offer you a job. Uh, and we do think people who create popular models are owed something. That's why we give players who commission original content a cut of all the sales that content generates. But the bottom line is our service is all about customization. There is no correct way to use our models. You're free to combine, to recombine, to tweak, to customize, to turn them into your own creation. Um, and all of our designers know that. We are not the guardians of good taste. There is no wrong way to use our models. Uh, so speaking of designers, why don't we talk a little bit about the playtesting experience? Because being that this is a company literally you guys created from the ground up, you guys didn't derive this mechanic from another system. This isn't like a, a half-life variation or something. This is like you guys created your own content, created your own game, created your own system. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the playtesting mechanic and how you derived the system and maybe even a little bit about what players can expect, like what they can compare this to, or, you know, you don't have to go into the details, but just how's the game play? Well, uh, let's see. The game... Well, why don't I feel the yeah. game's on you field playtesting, because gotcha. he, he does our playtesting. Yeah. Um, so, if you are an RPG player, I'd suggest looking at Hero or GURPS or any other point-based uh, character generation system as sort of what the game is about in general. In Proxy Army, uh, Proxy War, the tabletop game, rather, you can really create anything. The reason we have a tabletop game at all is we realize that there were models players could print that there is no game you can play with. If I want to print my own fully custom space pirate faction, we can print beautiful starships, beautiful miniatures, tanks, everything, but there's no game that will accept them. So when we designed Proxy War, the tabletop game, our goal was to make a tabletop board game where you could generate stats for any unit at all and then have them engage in a meaningful struggle. So the core of the system is that you can create new and interesting special abilities by combining building blocks which are in the rules to create new combos. So for instance, one of the building blocks in our set is summon, uh, which straightforwardly says you summon one or more units with the following stats onto the battlefield. One of the restrictions you can put onto that is a requirement that there be certain units at hand. So one power we've created uh, that we are demoing with right now is Fuse Flesh, which says target an area that contains a certain number of corpses, friendly or hostile. Those corpses are removed from the field and instead put this undead abomination unit into the center of the space whose stats are based on the number of corpses in the area of effect. 
And the way we were able to build that and have it be balanced is we said this is a summon power. You summon the undead abomination. With the limitation, undead abomination is less powerful if there are not enough corpses in the area for it to fully manifest. And by combining building blocks like that, you can create armies with any special ability, any combination or sets of powers, put them into play, and field them in a quick tactical war game. Uh, it functions at anything from skirmish scale to uh, epic scale, hundreds of armies. Uh, the way we've done that is when you have hordes of identical models, they can be treated as one unit in play. It's called a horde unit. Uh, thus allowing you to field a five-man adventuring party as your army or the 500 zombies who are closing in around them as your army for a quick and easy tactical war game. So players can basically generate, in theory, just about anything they want. Yes, Absolutely. That's, that's the okay. idea. Uh, needless to say, this is a system that's required a lot of clever mechanical underpinnings, yes. um, which I can talk about in more detail. It's also required a lot of playtesting, which is more Alan's department. Well, I think I should talk about the mechanical underpinnings first. Um, because we were building a game where the goal was anything and everything you could imagine we would represent, we had to sit down for days at a time and do nothing but say, okay, take it down to the barest, most fundamental axiom, what is this aspect of the game trying to accomplish, how does it interact with every other aspect of the game, and how then do we move forward to create that overall framework. So we sat down for days, locked ourselves in a room, with our vague ideas of our design goals after a revision of the rules. We came up with, okay, let's let's come up with this base set of rules and let's come up with these advantages and disadvantages and building blocks and recombine them and see how we can balance that. And it was good. It was a great system. It played well. It play tested very well. But in the end, it wasn't actually what we wanted. It didn't scale up properly. It didn't, didn't act like we wanted our game to act. So we sat down and we learned from those playtesting experiences, both in the on the table itself and behind the sort of DM screen, looking at analyzing how long it takes to do things, what things uh, have certain incentive incentives in terms of players' eyes. For example, um, we initially had a certain point at which a unit was perfectly defensible to normal uh, fire. It was it was defense six, so it's six up or six down actually in our role system. Uh, you automatically defended any defense check unless someone modified your defense beforehand, which would be weapons like armor-piercing things. Um, even though we priced it well enough that it was generally out of reach until you got past a certain point value for your army to generally have defense 6, every player raced when they had the opportunity to make their own units to get defense 6 because they thought, okay, I can perfectly defend anything and everything that isn't armor-piercing, so this must be the winning strategy. When you pair that with a few sniper units that can specifically target anyone on the field who has armor penetrating so as to make that unit perfectly defensible, that seems like it is the winning combo, but it's not, because it's expensive to do. It is priced exactly according to its utility. Still, everyone still raced for it, and when they lost, they were upset that they couldn't see why they lost. So, to that end, we took things like the, the emergent properties of those playtesting uh, sessions, and we looked at how we create both a game that mechanically represents the things we want it to represent, and also gives the right feel, creates the right culture, has exactly everything we want in the game, period. L uh, little things, like uh, higher numbers are always better. 
That didn't used to be the case. It used to be that lower numbers could be better in some cases. So we've had to simplify this. So on the stat line now, higher numbers are always better in a given stat. Um, other things like on, a die, on rolling a die, higher is always better. Um, you have to uh, be consistent in how the things are set up so that uh, the game is quick and easy. Even if it doesn't change anything mathematically underneath, it doesn't actually change your odds of success or failure. Mm -hmm. Little things like are you consistent about whether high is good or bad really influences the way players see and feel the game. There's a simplicity to it. Like they yeah. want a consistency of like high numbers are good, low numbers are good. We want to know at the roll of a die what's what's up, what is down. Absolutely. Exactly. And um, we, should sorry, talk, we should talk about Zargoth. Uh, yes, absolutely. But but what, what happens with playtesting is you take all these fundamental axioms, you take all these ideas you're trying to express in the game, and you set very rigorous um, data points that you look for in play and you watch like a hawk over and over and over and you play test until you think you can't possibly play test anymore and then you keep going. For a game where you are supposed to be able to imagine and create anything, you need the most statistically rigorous base core mechanics you've ever seen. And I'm not gonna say hyperbolically that we've got the best period bar none ever, but we have play tested it until it polishes. You could eat off of that. Uh, the uh, uh, I would give another good example. Uh, so one of our early playtesting goals was a turn should be quick. Playing a turn of proxy war should not take more than a minute or two. Um, and so our on the little survey, we would record the entire playtesting session, fill out these tables afterwards, was what was the average turn time, what was the shortest turn time, what was the longest turn time. But then later on, we discovered that not all turn time is equal. Time that players spend worrying about uh, if they're doing the right thing is less unpleasant than time they spend looking through the rules, which is much more unpleasant than time they spend rolling dice. So now we have a much more detailed breakdown. Players should spend between this much time and this much time rolling dice on the average. Players should spend between this much time and this much time considering their move on the average. Players should never need to reference the rulebook more than this many times per game. That sort of thing. So this was this was part of the playtesting experience. Yes. So this is not like I'm going to open the rule book and be like players should. No, no, no. No, no this no. is all about our design goals sure. for the game. It's, it's all about making a game that fits everyone. Um, not necessarily fits everyone, but but is the optimal to fit everyone. It's it's got to be able to make everybody as close to happy as possible. Sure. Exactly. Pleasing the most number of people. Exactly. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. So, for instance, there was one revision where we actually had too little time spent rolling dice. Because we thought, well, I can have all of the statistical bits that need to be worked out done with a single roll of 3d6. So we will have players roll one 3d6 for everything. We got the complaint. When I have, you know, ten units with machine guns all firing at once, I like the feeling of picking up a giant pile of dice in my hands and rolling it and saying, you know, <laughs> you are dead. Yeah. Um, so that added to it the requirement that, for instance, previously, prior to that, we just had time spent rolling dice is bad because it pads out the turn and slows the game down for large armies. Now we have time spent rolling dice should be roughly proportionate to how important that unit is to the overall army and how powerful it is with caps at the top and the bottom. If you are playing a 500 zombie army, it should not take you five hours to take your turn, even though there's 100 units there. 
But if you are playing a one-man army, you know, the, the ultimate hero, there should still be a reasonable amount of die roll. And we've worked out a system that we think is pretty good in that yep. regard. Have you tried that scenario where you have just hordes and hordes of minis versus yes. a small squad of elite guys? And that, uh, that brings up what he wanted to earlier. Uh, we, we have certain design... We have certain... Uh, what's the word? Hypothetical armies. Yes, hypothetical armies, and these guys are given certain nicknames in our in our dev code. One of them is Zargoth the Destroyer. Zargoth the Destroyer is our little shorthand for a guy who has every single advantage, special ability, whatever that is relevant. So so he's Zargoth the Destroyer, and because he also has troop transport, he is also a party bus on the weekends. Um, what he does is we use that hypothetical guy to test, okay, if we put everything together, how does it behave in terms of this particular build of the system versus that particular build of the system? So, so, so let me give an example. So one of the other terms we have is chronopants. Uh, chronopants is our hypothetical commander leadership unit, um, named because of a rather funny incident uh, during game dev, which I will not discuss on the oh. podcast. No, um, no. All right, all right. Um, which is a hypothetical unit with buffs or high leadership or other things that make a squad better. So one thing we might say is, so if we assign Chronopants to a squad with Zargoth, does that break the game? And what we mean by that is when you assign units with high leadership to squads full of small numbers of super elite units, does that break the game? Or another thing we might say is if we assign Chronopants to a horde of goblins, does that break the game? And what impact does that have? break the game? No. Uh, we have set up a system nope. by which the amount of effort you put into any buff is proportional to the amount of benefit you get out of it. And that is not dependent on whether you've got 10,000 one-point units or one 10,000-point unit. Those both receive the same amount of benefit from a single buff. Um, okay, so um, where have you actually taken this game out to? So you've playtested it, I know, in the studio. Have you, you have you shot that at expos? Have you shot that at game stores? Like where where have people had a chance to actually get a try this out? We've done a bunch of game stores in the North Carolina area, particularly the Research Triangle. Okay. Um, a few in St. Louis. Shout outs. Yes. Uh, also shout outs. Uh, Event Horizon and Atomic Empire. Two game stores. If you're ever in the Research Triangle, I highly recommend them. They are both fantastic. Yeah. Um, and we also, I think this came up previously, did the Escapist Expo, where we just ran demo games all day long. That was our first, that was probably actually our biggest public release so far. It wasn't really a playtest, since we extensively playtested the module, of course, before bringing it to the Expo. But that was the first, unveiling, I guess. Yeah, that, yeah, that was our big unveiling. Um, and it went really well. We were really pleased with how things went. Absolutely. We had people who had never sat down to play an RPG of any kind before. I mean, never held a game controller, never picked up a pen and paper, never put together a squad for a war game, and they were playing it just as, almost as quickly as the people who were, you know, 20-year veterans in Games Workshop you know, okay. stuff. So quick to pick up, quick to learn, and entirely mutable. I mean, yes. it sounds like a perfect marriage of everything sort of coming together. Mm -hmm. Wow, when you put it that way. <laughs> All right, well, why don't we take a, a brief break one more time, guys, and we'll uh, come back in just a minute, and we will ask uh, a few more questions of these guys, and, uh, you know, if you're interested, please definitely subscribe to our, uh, our list, subscribe to the podcast, and we will try to get those questions to them, and maybe they can you know, relay those answers to you guys. So we're going to have a brief break, and we'll be right back. Need a model assembled or painted but no money to spare? White Metal Games is now offering trade-ins. 
Send us pictures of your old models, bits, boxes, even new kits. Make us an offer we can't refuse. Don't like negotiating and haggling? Black Metal Games also offers consignment services. You can send us your old models, books, games to sell. We sell them through our eBay store, and you pocket 55% of the sales price. You don't have to worry about eBay fees, PayPal fees, shipping fees. There's no crazy percentages, just easy money. Contact us at info at whitemetalgames.com today. Hi guys, and we're back, and we are back again with Tristan and Alan from Proxy Army and Proxy War, and we want to talk about the uh, Kickstarter program they've got going. Um, now, Kickstarters these days are, are pretty much, I would say, sort of a dime a dozen. There's just plenty of them out there, um, and you guys are launching pretty soon. When is your actual launch for your product? When, when can we see Proxy War on the table? The Kickstarter goes live on November the 5th. Uh, remember, remember the 5th of November. Uh, and we hope to have the product actually released and on shelves about seven months after that. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Kickstarter. What, we, what can we expect to see in the Kickstarter? Uh, well, you can expect to see a lot of things, the big one of which, of course, is fully customized models. Uh, so you get a free copy of the Proxy War tabletop game with any purchase of models, uh, a PDF copy. If you want, you can spring for a hardcover. Uh, but the big thing is, of course, personalized and customized models. If you want personalized models to go onto our database, grab parts, clip them together, create a custom D&D character, a custom army, anything, um, it's going to cost you about $7 a model for a 28mm fig to get them fully customized online, 3D printed in fine detail, and shipped right to you. Um, if you want fully original content, something that has never been made before, um, that's a bit more expensive, uh, $430 for a fully custom unit. But like I said, Whenever you order fully custom content, we disassemble that content, all the parts go into the database, and whenever someone orders your model or uses your parts, you get a cut of the sales. Um, one other thing, if you happen to be a game dev who is interested in fully custom models for your games, uh, we will have a game dev reward level, and we do give big discounts for game devs who are interested in having their models produced on 3D printers. Absolutely, and that's both for uh call it uh, full production lines and for high quality prototypes. So how do you guys expect to differentiate your Kickstarter from let's say every other Kickstarter out there right now as opposed to just say you know, launching a product just putting it on the shelves? Why did you guys decide to go with Kickstarter and what do you hope to you do to differentiate yourself from other Kickstarters? Well as much time as we've put into the game, as much time as we've put into the models, into the design staff, into all that structure, we've also put a lot of time into studying what makes a good Kickstarter a good Kickstarter. Uh, no one can out right, right now out there claim to be a Kickstarter expert, but I'd say we're getting close. Um, we've put a lot of time and effort into, say, research on how videos should be, on how help me out here, well, how well, award tiers should work. Well, yeah, well, there's a lot of details, but it really boils down to his enthusiasm. Um, that you can put a good idea in front of someone and they shrug and go, yes, I agree that that's a good idea, but that doesn't mean they're going to get excited about it. Um, getting people excited about a Kickstarter, which is what makes a Kickstarter succeed, is about making them feel they're involved in the process, like they're making something happen. And that's particularly easy for us because players really are the driving force behind our game in terms of development. They are the ones making the custom content, they are the ones making the custom armies, they are the one driving the lore and driving the world. So that's really what helps us differentiate ourselves and make all the players feel engaged with our launch. Uh, at our launch kickoff event, we are even having a contest for best custom army idea. 
a winner gets $3,000 in store credit to commission their fully custom line of units. Nice. So they could come in with any concept they like, and if they were to be voted or win that, then you'll be building basically whatever war they want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what the contest is going to be is going to be for 24 fully original units uh, from scratch. Anything you can imagine. You're going to come in, you're going to write down your concept. There's going to be one round of voting that's going to be more localized by table. The winner from that table goes up to the by quadrant uh, for our launch party. Um, and then those four and then uh, an additional one from the VIP room, which is going to be a fun thing I'll get into next, um, will uh, go up to the last level. And those five, the four who are runners-up, will get each a custom mini uh, originally done from that set. And then the winner will get their entire army or mini set done for them. Uh, and since staff aren't allowed to vote, I'm going to go ahead and say that I do have a favorite of all the ideas we've seen well, so far. Yes, but oh, we I... shouldn't talk about it yet. We should let that one be a surprise. Okay, we should, but it's, uh, it's a good idea. Um, as Alan was saying, we will also have people in our VIP room, guests of honor. Um, the big one of which is Rob Balder of Earthworld. Um, if you're familiar with it, Earthworld is a truly fantastic comic about tabletop gaming. I yeah, I saw that on... Um, Yes. Yeah. yeah, Order of the Stick, yes. Um, Earthworld and Schlock Mercenary will both be endorsing us, and as part of our special release on Kickstarter, you will be able to purchase Kickstarter-exclusive Schlock Mercenary and Earthworld miniatures, which have never been made available before and will never be made available again. So if I want to buy characters from the Earthworld comic, those will be available? Yes, there will be a special reward package uh, on the Kickstarter, just for those. Yes. Um, so why don't you tell us a little about, about the levels of a Kickstarter, like what will the lowest levels be, what will the higher levels be, and what will people get for those? Okay, so uh, there are four big levels that we anticipate people will be interested in. Um, excuse me. Uh, the, the lowest one is Squad Leader, which is $70. Uh, that gets you 10 fully customized 28-millimeter uh, figurines. So that's a D&D party, a, squad, a skirmish scale uh, army. You can play our game with uh, just a skirmish scale army of models. A fully custom squad for any other game you might play. A set of minis to customize one of your factions. Anything. Um, you can also instead get six huge models. That's like uh, uh, maybe 50, 60 millimeters tall, a troll, an ogre, an armored vehicle, that sort of thing. Um, the one that we anticipate uh, being the big mover is the platoon commander level, uh, which is 30 uh, fully custom. Uh, and these can be 30 totally different guys. You can say, I want a robot, a ninja, a scout, different things. Uh, because that gives you a complete army. Uh, that is where, for less than $7 a mini, you get an entirely fully custom army to your tastes. You can swap it for huge units, giant units like tanks, but you can even get one Titan. Uh, Titan scale units are one of the things we're particularly proud of. That is a unit up to 22 centimeters tall, um, which you will be able to get at the platoon commander reward level. Um, above that is the war hero reward level, uh, which is where you get a fully custom unit made for you entirely from scratch, the parts of which then go into our database and you get a percentage of all the profits. Um, finally, at the really high end, if you have the fanciest of pants and feel like donating, uh, is the fully custom army level. Uh, that is where you get uh, uh, 12 to 22 fully custom units, and we also do a full codex right up of them, exactly like it was a war game. So if you want your 
you know, D&D extended party and all the RPG characters you've ever played done. We will make all of those minis fully from scratch and then do a full book binding together all of their stats, custom character art, custom background art, just like they were going to be released in a D&D module. Uh, if you, it's a fully custom army, we will write up the stats for all of your units with custom art, recommended strategies, uh, character art and write up exactly like it was an army book for any tabletop game out there, etc. I should note there is actually also a slightly higher tier that gets all of that into the core book. Um, you can have one of your factions become you can have your faction become one of the core factions of Proxy War. I'm particularly fond of that. Yeah, so you can like, sort of buy real estate in the game. Absolutely, you can buy real estate. Uh, in addition to uh, that, being one of the core armies gets you and your custom original content more out there so that that percentage of your profits is a percentage of our total sales at that point. So this is kind of like a game five players, four players. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So what about the lower levels? What about the, the Joe Schmo, the blue collar levels? Oh, man. Um, I love those because one of the things we've done is we've put so much time and effort into our art budget that we were looking around, everything we had just lined up for the Kickstarter, and we were like, man, we should make an art book of this. One of our lowest levels is a full art book, and it's incredible. Um, yes, so in total, uh, over the course of our six-month run, our art team has been working super intensive hours. We have 3,000 finished pieces of character concept art, uh, finished promo art, and detailed unit sketches, uh, all of which are being bound together for one of our lowest reward levels into a beautiful digital art book, uh, which is really going to show off how a game is made artistically. Everything from how the factions were initially conceived, how unit design worked, notes from the art and design teams on how like uh, faction aesthetics were designed between units. Um, if you are interested in how a game gets made artistically, how the units are designed, how they're 3D modeled, how they're conceived and finalized, uh, this is a fantastic, cheap, easy to access reward level. Absolutely. Other lower ones include the, uh, the hardback book. Yeah, the book. hardcover rule book. Um, uh, uh, oh, shoot, I'm blanking. What about stuff yeah, like, me too. Um, I guess, game pieces you. like terrain and templates and that sort of stuff? Oh, yeah, gotcha. Um, as far as we're concerned, terrain is a model. Um, if you want to commission custom terrain, that is exactly the same price with us as commissioning a custom unit in all respects. Okay. With Actually, there are a couple tiny little exceptions. Um, because terrain tends to have... Uh, more geometric, geometrically stable shapes, you can actually print it larger for cheaper because you can hollow out the inside. Uh, it's one of the wonderful things about 3D printing. You can create little cavities with support struts so that you don't actually have to pay for the full volume of the model. Okay. It's great. Are you guys going to release some um, sets of terrain when you first launch? To yes. Sort of give you some basic demo Ooh, stuff? Actually, our first stretch goal is something that has not been done before, period, oh, bar none. Okay, so... Uh, yes, we will be releasing a ton of game, a ton of terrain with the base game. But our first stretch goal, which we are really excited about and really want to meet, is destructible terrain. Uh, so the way destructible terrain works, and I hope we will get to it, is you build a plastic frame of the building that just generally outlines the building's shape, and then you have custom 3D printed sandstone floors, walls, interior walls, furniture, ceilings, everything that you assemble around it and thus create a complete intact building. Now what makes it destructible is that those 3D printed pieces are pre-broken and fit, just fit together so cleanly in their slots that they appear to create an intact wall. 
but you give it one good rap with a knuckle and pieces fall off. Add that with rules about damaging buildings and structures. And you can have a game where a building starts intact. You can start with, say, an office, you know, terrorists have taken cover in this office block, root them out. At the start of the game, the office block is completely intact. But as the battle goes on, bullet holes are appearing in the walls, walls have been knocked down, doors have been kicked in, that sort of thing. Our basic goal is that you should be able to do everything from drive a sniper out of cover by bombarding the building he's in, to drive a tank through the front door of a building and have it drive out the back, trailing pieces of wall as it goes. And, and radically changing the play of the game as it goes as well. Yes. So the environmental rules will definitely have an impact on play. Absolutely. And we're going to have um, just the same as we have our unit models, we will have terrain models made available immediately. Yes. yes. Um, one of the interesting uh, emergent properties of our rule set, which we didn't anticipate, but which we are actually very happy with, is that since everything is so carefully priced against each other, since um, if you pay 50 points, you are getting exactly 50 points worth of units, um, the real way to beat your opponent is to use the environment against him. You can't have a better army than his. You can have an army that is better able to take advantage of circumstances. So our game has really turned out to be all about careful strategic positioning, advancing undercover, using the terrain to your advantage. And destructible terrain is going to add a ton to that and just be fantastic all around. Absolutely. Uh, but I wouldn't quite say that uh, using the terrain and the environment and circumstances to your advantage is the be-all, end-all. I would also say that one of the other things about our, army, uh, our armies is that you can stat them such that they change the circumstances of mm. battle themselves. Yes. It's... it's, it's equal parts using the circumstances you have available to you and changing the circumstances in play as you go. Nice. So when does the Kickstarter kickstart? 5th of November. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. And when is the launch party? 5th of November. Same. So same day. Absolutely. And Kickstarter runs for, what, 30 days? Yeah. Yep. Uh, 35. 35. Yeah. What, uh, what is your guys' target number in order to be funded? Because kick, is, is Kickstarter the one where you have to hit a target number in order to be funded? Yes. yes. Our target, our target what is that target? 75,000. Okay. So, 75,000 is, is pretty high. Do you feel any risk at all about what happens if you don't hit 75? No. Do you have a plan B if you don't hit 75? Is that yes, sort of but I don't think gonna... we should discuss it right now. Okay, so we're <laughs> going to hope for 75, and that's what we're hoping for. Yep. Uh, okay, well, where can we find more information out about Proxy Army and Proxy War? You can go to our website, www.proxyarmy.com, uh, where there's lots more information about the game, about our service, and about our launch. Uh, and if you happen to be in the North Carolina area on the 5th, we are throwing a launch party at the local game shop here, the Atomic Empire. We're expecting about 150 attendees. We're going to game and party all night long. There's a laptop giveaway, and the big thing is the contest, which I mentioned before, for a free, fully custom army. Um, there are still slots available, so if you're in the North Carolina area, we'd love to have you. Nice. So when you say a laptop giveaway, why don't you tell people a little bit more about that? We are... We are giving away two Chrome netbooks. Yes. So since it is a, a kickoff party, uh, one of the things we are going to have set up, there, it's just an event to get people excited. There's games, the custom army contests to get people thinking about what sort of custom models they Absolutely. might make. It's about building the community for Proxy War. Yes. yes. Um, but since we will have, uh, that, that is our launch event, we are going to have uh, a table with a few Chromebooks set up so that if people want to go l watch the Kickstarter video or page around and examine the reward levels while they're at the party, they can. Uh, and we are going to be raffling those Chromebooks away at the end of the night. Will they have a chance to sort of experiment with the database while they're there and kind of play with it? 
we will have a lot of demos. Uh, the database is not yet uh, fully accessible. That's what our Kickstarter money is going towards to finishing it up. Uh, but there will be demos of everything that's there, yes. Okay. Um, so in regards to community, are you guys on any sort of community sites, like on Facebook or Blogger? Or yes. Where, where else can we find you? We have our own Facebook, Twitter. We even have Pinterest, even though I don't use it too much. Um, we, you can find us about any social media site. Facebook.com slash ProxyArmy. Yep. Same with ProxyArmy.com as our website. Uh, okay. Well, guys, we really appreciate you being here with War Council tonight. Is there anything else you'd like to sort of leave people with in regards to what they can expect and what you hope the future holds with Proxy War, with Proxy Army, and I guess the future of 3D printing in general? Do you think this is going to really knock the shocks, socks off of the wargaming industry? Do you think this is sort of the, the first, you know, I guess the first... Uh, first barrage and sort of a new revolution in the Absolutely. Uh, we are definitely the first barrage. Um, so 3D printing is going to turn miniature gaming on its head. Right now, our 3D printing is done on a multiple hundreds of thousands of dollar industrial printer we just buy time on. Uh, but there are already desktop 3D printers that can do almost the same thing for $3,000. Now, $3,000 is a bit much for the average consumer still, but when that drops to two or 300 when anybody can print fine cast quality models on their desktop, it's going to turn the entire miniatures gaming industry on its head. And we're just getting started with that, but long run, as 3D printing technology becomes more ubiquitous, we're going to expand, we're going to get more custom content, and we're going to let people print models on home 3D printers on their own desktop for just a tiny access fee per model. Um, the future of miniature gaming is not box kits full of identical models. It is players being able to create anything they want, print it at home, uh, and then game with it. And we're going to try and make that happen. Absolutely. OK, well, that sounds really exciting, guys. I cannot wait to see how this specs up. I'll definitely be there on the 5th of November. And if you guys are in the Raleigh Triangle area and you can get out to Atomic Empire on the 5th, you know, definitely send these guys a message, let them know you're coming. And until then, put your minis where your mouth is.